Uh, I will read as I have each with each lesson. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, we've come to a point that we're examining some scriptures, just briefly, not in a lot of detail, that have been set forth as arguments against the reality that we have eternal life and that that eternal life cannot, will not be taken away. Uh, we've looked at some having to do with uh, the rewards that God offers his people and the loss of those rewards. And again, some have misapplied those passages as if, as if they are talking about losing eternal life. No, talking about losing rewards. Uh, we're going to be looking at a few passages, a very few, that have to do with the chastening of God's children. But I want to start with a, a passage that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians three thirteen through 17. And uh, these verses touch on both the matter of rewards and chastening. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time with this, and I don't know just how far we'll get this morning, but we'll find out, won't we? Each one's work will become clear. Now, we may look at someone's life and someone's work and don't know the details that have gone on between them and the Lord. And indeed, that person may have gone in a path that was not God's will, but because it didn't turn out badly. I mean, I've heard that argument. As long as I'm doing okay, it doesn't matter. As long as it didn't turn out too badly, I'm okay. Well, it's going to become clear what is what. For the day will declare it. Because it will be re revealed <clears throat> by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, that is on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, if that work is not according to the plan of God, if it's not fitting in with his eternal will, if it's something that we have thought up, whatever it may be, if it's not acceptable and uh, to him, and it's burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now this next verse I will definitely be clarifying. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Don't, don't get disturbed by that. We need to look at that a little more closely. God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. I believe this passage sets forth the uh, true consequence of living our lives according to our own will. Whatever our will might be, people have different values for their lives. Some of them want to party, some of them want to be bankers, and I shouldn't say this, but cheat people out of their money. Now, if you've read about Wells Fargo and Bank America, you, you, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but if people live according to their will instead of God's, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. That, child of God, is the worst consequence that can take place if you choose not 
to, to devote your life to him. Uh, he'll, he'll be saved yet so as through fire. So the person who's accepted Christ, who genuinely exercised faith and made a committal of heart to the Lord at some point, became a child of God through the new birth, through faith in Christ, but whose life's labors and life's trials because whether you yield to God or not, you're going to go through some hard things in life, whose uh, successes are all so valueless in the eyes of God that they just have to be burned. They're waste. They're in the way. They don't belong. Will that person be lost? Well, according to this passage, absolutely not. The one who set their plan above God's plan, their will above God's will, it's a serious business, mind you, and we'll get into that. That kind of a life choice, that kind of a decision, that kind of a path, uh, we don't make light of it. And when I say the worst that can happen to you is that your works will be burned, that's not a small thing. That's not a small issue to come to the end of life and to realize that your life is wasted and there are no do-overs. By the way, what a privilege we have now. I'm not going to get too far ahead of myself, but what a privilege we have now to bring ourselves to the Lord in our weaknesses, in our failures, in our bad decisions, repent of those things, acknowledge those things before him, and allow him to make the necessary changes. That's a privilege we have. But there will come a day when that time is over, the eternal day, the day of the Lord has dawned, and that person will be saved, but the life's labors will go up in flames. It's serious business. We'll come to that shortly. But what kind of works does God consider to be so useless, so pointless, that he has determined now that when that day comes, he's going to incinerate them out of existence without a trace? What, what kind of things would God look on and say, you know, I, I, that, that's a waste, that needs to go? Well, the obvious answer would be sinful works, and you can make your own list. I'm not going to make a list. There are lists various places in the scriptures, but things that are obviously sinful. You know, we could name things. I don't know. Let's talk about being a drug addict or a murderer, you know, and, and there's a list that goes down to a lot of other things that people don't take seriously. But God does. And he looks on those obviously sinful works that anyone in their right mind would see as sinful. And he says those, those things, there can be no trace of those left. They're going to be burned. But there's another level of works that are useless in God's eyes. When I first began to yield to the Lord, uh, I understood I needed to get my life in order. Some habits needed to drop off. I needed to get back in church. And I began to follow that path, and I, I felt, well, the Lord made a, a call on my life when I was just a teenager. The summer that I got filled with the Holy Spirit, he made it very clear to me that he had a purpose for my life uh, to minister. And uh, I've always, those that know me know that I like to go to other countries and eat other food and see other cultures and what have you. And I decided, well, I can, I can be a missionary and I knew some missionaries in uh, Suriname, and the, the, the national language in Suriname is Dutch, and I began studying Dutch. 
and I was preparing myself to go there and be a missionary. And the Lord made it abundantly clear to me that that was not his plan for my life. Now, what if I had decided, well, you know, I still think I can make a good thing out of this and accomplish good things for the Lord, and I'm going to go ahead and be a missionary. Maybe I won't be quite like Jonah who took off in the other direction and said, I'm not going to talk to anybody about this, but the Lord had a plan for me to be here over a period of, you know, more than four decades. That was his purpose. What if I had ignored his purpose and gone ahead and become a missionary? Now, there was a revival that swept through Central and South America quite a number of years ago, and uh, some tremendous things happened. What if I had been there when that happened, and I had been preaching, and people were gathered in, and God sovereignly overruled my bad choice and my disobedience, and all things worked together for good to them that love God. People who began to give their hearts to God were blessed in spite of my disobedience, would the positive results be reckoned to my account? And the answer is no. Because I was walking all that time in disobedience to the Lord's very clear instruction and will for my life. You know, King Saul disobeyed God. The Lord had told him to go in and destroy Amalek, to destroy all of the uh, possessions of the Amalekites, But instead, he decided, uh, at least this was his story, he decided he would keep of some of the best of the herds and the flocks, and then out of those he offered sacrifices to God. Sacrifices. Now, sacrifices were a part of God's order for that day. Animal sacrifices, that was a part of the worship, the honoring of God. They set forth a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Was God pleased with those sacrifices that he made? Was Saul rewarded? Or did Saul suffer loss for having offered sacrifices to God when God said, no, destroy those things? 1 Samuel 15, 22 through 23. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Whatever service we may offer to God, obedience is the first issue. Everything else follows after that or nothing follows after that that he cares about. To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed, to pay attention to what he wants than the fat of rams. And the reason isn't that just God is determined to be a dictator. God's ways, there's a song, God's ways are best ways. The things that we do in his name are blessings. Ultimately, we do cause damage if we don't obey him. It goes on for rebellion. Here's what I want you to do. No, I think I'll do this. That's rebellion. However it can be termed, it's rebellion. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness. Is as iniquity. I will do what I want. It's iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the word went to King Saul, he also has rejected you from being king. Now notice rejection by Saul of God's will resulted in rejection of Saul 
for a place of prominence. So when we look at life, however good, however useful, a substitute for God's will might seem in the short term. Uh, Whatever the result of that may appear to be to the natural eye, uh, all disobedience is sin. You don't have to be living in the gutter. You don't have to be stealing from people. You don't have to be beating people up on the street. You don't have to be doing any of those things that everybody says that's obviously sin. Disobedience to God. Setting yourself on a path that is not the path God has chosen for you and made clear to you that's sin. And there can be no reward for walking in disobedience and sin. It will be judged. Let's take a few minutes to consider his judgment of our works. And uh, taking time with this, because when we, when we say this, this, this distortion of the passages regarding works, as if they have to do with the loss of eternal life, uh, it's easy to make light of that loss of reward if we don't take time to examine the scriptures. And so we see in Romans chapter 14, about the middle of verse 10, moving forward, it says, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Do you know any Christians that don't really, well, maybe they don't bow the knee even naturally speaking, but they don't, they're not really submitting to him. Well, ultimately, every knee will bow. Every tongue shall confess. Shall confess. Shall confess what? Well, confess that he's Lord, but there will be more. Shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, this is not the great white throne judgment that we read about in Revelation 20. There in Revelation 20, at the great white throne, the dead will stand before him. That is, those who have rejected Christ, who have not accepted eternal life, who are still dead in trespasses and sins, they will be judged according to their works. Uh, And I'll just throw this in. It appears from the scripture that there are degrees of condemnation, and God doesn't tell us anything about it. But they'll be judged according to their works. Um, this picture that we see in Romans 14, though, is the judgment seat of Christ. And there at the judgment seat of Christ, we who are saved will give account of ourselves unto our Lord. He bore our condemnation at the cross. That condemnation price, that judgment, that extreme judgment has been paid. It is not we who will be judged there, but our works. And there's, there's a great difference. There's a tremendous difference. In the one case, the, the lost will be sent to the lake of fire. In the other case, our works may be burned if they're not according to God's will. But that's two very different things, isn't it? But when it says there that each of us will give account of himself to God... Take that literally. Do you ever look at your bank account and balance the checkbook and find your mistakes? And uh, Back in the old days when I was single and in the Army, I, uh, I never balanced my checkbook. 
I just spent till I figured I was pretty close to running out of money, and then I'd stop spending, and then I'd write down whatever the bank said my balance was on the next statement, and I'd go from there. <clears throat> That's not a good way to do things. And spiritually, if we don't take account of our lives, the Bible says, and we'll get to that, if we judge ourselves, we should not be judged. If we'll, if we'll take account of our lives, we'll know where we stand. We'll know, am I really yielding to God or have I taken off on a tangent that's really my choice, my desire, what seems good or comfortable or pleasant at the time? Uh, where it says we shall give account, the Greek, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the Greek word is logos, which literally means a word, but it also means a statement or to give a reason. Now, you did thus and such. Use your words and explain to me what you did and why you did it. <clears throat> there is going to be a giving account. I remember, have you ever stood in court before a traffic judge, you know, for doing something you shouldn't have done? And if you're smart, it's yes, sir. And it's no, sir. And I really don't have any excuse, sir. Uh, because you understand that this guy can beat you down, right? He's not going to. There are limits to what he's going to do. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever stood at attention, you know, in formation, in uniform, with a guy standing in front of you looking you up and down, wanting to take your weapon out of your hands and look down the barrel and make sure it's clean, looking over your brass to see if it's polished. Is it? And he's got stars on his shoulders, now, you know you're not going to go to a firing squad, but there's a little tremble there because you understand the authority of this person. To stand before him, not having submitted to him fully here, to bow before him who loved us enough to die for us, and to acknowledge finally in that hour that we did not love him enough to live for him. It's going to be a solemn occasion. In Revelation, it speaks of the fact that God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ will not shame us. That's not the point. But it will not be a pleasant time to recognize at last, this is what I threw away. This is who... I neglected. This is the love that I made light of and chose my own will. Bear in mind and veil yourself always of that promise in 1 John 1 9, and I mentioned this earlier, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Now, thank God that he doesn't just say, well, that's okay. It's okay, honey. It's okay, honey. That's not God. When he dealt with that woman caught in adultery, it was, neither do I condemn you. Go. Sin no more. So thank God not just for forgiveness, but also for this cleansing. The reality is we're going to fail. The reality is if you have not made major bad decisions spiritually, you probably will before it's done. You're going to do things that you know are stupid and wrong, and yet you do them. 
But when you recognize, when you examine yourself and you recognize this is so wrong, you have the privilege now of coming to him and having the slate wiped clean for those sins, for those deeds, not having to carry them with you, as it were, before him to the judgment seat of Christ and then watch as he deals with your sins and again as you recognize your failure to love as you have been loved and to follow him as you should have followed and as you recognize just what you've thrown away. You don't have to do that. We have an option. We can confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive. Moving on though, Second Corinthians 5, 9, and 10 says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present, that is present in the body, or absent, uh, to be well-pleasing with, to him. And that's what we want. Do, do any of you love anybody? Do you want to please that person? That really is a part of love. It's not about your gratification. It's the desire to do good for that person. That's what real love is. Yes, I'm, I'm glad that there are pleasures to be had in friendships and, and loving our parents and having a marriage. And, but it's really love is about giving for God so loved the world that he gave. And so that, uh, that desire to be pleasing to him, to be well-pleasing to him is to be a part of the love that we have. For we must all appear, and here it is again, before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There will be something that takes place whether you have lived godly, submitted, in love, in obedience to Christ, or whether you have not. Something will be received. And so at that place and time... God's people receive according to their deeds, whether it be it reward or loss. Read that next verse in that passage in, in verse 11, 2 Corinthians 5, 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. I'd like to be able to soften down that word terror, but it's a good translation. Coming before the Lord, knowing what your life has been if it has not been right, it will be the most difficult thing that you will ever have faced in all of your existence. Now, he'll wipe away all tears. That sorrow is not going to extend into eternal ages. He will satisfy. Brother C.E. Foster used to say, he kind of talked down here. He he was a large man. He'd move up and down when he talked. He said, in heaven, everybody will have a full cup. Some people will have a bigger cup. God will satisfy, and I thank God that it will be a time of joy for eternity. But uh, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known to your consequences. My, my conviction is, and one of the reasons I'm spending so much time with this, is if I'm going to proclaim the gospel of grace as fully as I know how, and if I'm going to share the good news that God will never, ever, ever cast away his own, then I believe I must also be realistic in setting out uh, that with the greatness of his grace comes great 
accountability. He, he's willing to show us so much, and he does, and he will. And as he reveals his grace, do you know what this message of grace, this message that says eternal life is eternal, eternal salvation is eternal, eternal redemption is eternal, eternal righteousness is re- eternal. What's this all about? It's so that you and I can say, okay, that's done. I don't need to worry about it again. Did you ever pay off a house? or pay off a car, and with that last payment, it's like, okay, that's done. Jesus made the first and last payment. That's done. Now you can get on with other things. Instead of paying down that mortgage or that car loan, now that money can be used for something else. Instead of trying to pay off eternal life and trying to be sure that you're saved, you can take that energy and that commitment to the Lord that desire for his good things, and you, you can take that time and spend it, that energy and expend it, that devotion and commit it to things that go further and further and further into the heights of his will. If we don't do that, if we just say, well, I'm going to heaven, I got it. And I, I say with some sadness, two people come to mind that attended Brother Carson Richard's church many years ago, and they just had sort, sort of settled on the fact, well, I'm going to heaven. And, you know, I'll never have this. I'll never do that. I'll never be this. But I know I'm going to heaven. If you stop there, you're not getting the point. You're missing the point. You, you, uh, the grace of God has appeared to all men teaching us, us that denying ungodliness and worldly loves, lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that glorious hope and I can't remember how the rest of it goes, but the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what grace teaches us. Uh, so in Luke twelve forty-eight, the latter part of that verse, it says, uh, For everyone to whom much is given. And I will ask you, do you believe that when Christ died for you and paid all of the penalty for your folly, your sin, your disobedience, do you believe that he did something great, that he gave much to you? And when he explained to you, you don't have to be afraid of going to hell. You don't even have to think that I might cast you out. Did he give much to you when he gave you that peace? Everyone to whom much is given from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him they will ask more and so we we know that there is reward we know there's loss and that loss is a serious thing it's not loss of eternal life but take it seriously and desire to please him but chastening is spoken of here in first corinthians 3 also Uh, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. (laughs) Oh, it was suggested to me years ago that uh, that implied that God would destroy a saved person. And uh, judgment of of, uh, condemnation. But let's look at the vocabulary. The same Greek word is used, uh, well, I got ahead of myself. There we go. Uh, If anyone defiles, God will destroy. It's actually the same word used in the Greek. 
And what that word really means is to, uh, well, it means to corrupt or to bring to ruin. The idea of condemnation is not there. A couple of other occurrences of the word in 1 Corinthians 15:33: do not be deceived, evil company corrupt good habits. You'll always have habits of some sort. Uh, I read of somebody who, uh, who smoked, and they went to a hypnotist. They couldn't stop smoking, and the hypnotist got them to stop smoking, and they started biting their fingernails. You know, change of habits. There was still a bad habit there. Uh, evil company. By the way, Brother Greg mentioned uh, friendship of the world is enmity with God. Why did Jesus keep company with sinners? Was it to be pals? Was it just to be friends? Was it just business? Now, if you're in business, you're going to network and so forth. But was it just all about business networking and positive relationships with the world? Jesus was in contact with the unsaved to get them saved. He was in contact with rebellious to get them to see what they needed to do. We need to do the same. Evil company corrupts good habits. Galatians 6 7 and the beginning of verse 8 uses a different form of the word. It's a noun instead of the verb, but it, it has the same thought. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. That's where it comes in. If you defile this temple, if you choose defilement, God will say, okay, that's your choice. He doesn't give you up to sin. But he says, if you've chosen corruption, you're going to have to see what corruption means. And so what, what is set forth here is really the thought of the potential severity and the fitness of God's chastening upon his children. You sow to the flesh, take on corrupting sins, ambitions, or fellowship with the world. Our Heavenly Father will let us learn what it means. There will be a harvest of corruption in the here and now. Um, other corrupting influences, and well, there's going to be a bad harvest if we choose corruption. But again, notice that the harvest will be now in the body of the flesh and appropriate to the sowing that we've done. And then I've got a lot more scriptures, but I'll read one more and we'll stop with that. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty through 32 for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Now, I hesitate to say what I hope you already know. All sin and sickness is a result of sin because they entered because of Adam's sin. Not all sickness and not all death is the result of someone's personal sin. That just isn't the case. But sometimes it is. For this cause, because of carelessness, because of foolish behavior around the things of God. Good message. For this reason, many are weak and sick, and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Now, there's, there's some things here that I... I have to admit, I don't fully understand, but God sets apart certain things in dealing with his children. Next week, I'll probably look at a verse that says there's a sin unto death and there's a sin that's not unto death. If we're talking about condemnation, how much sin, you see how many fingers I'm holding up, right? 
How much sin would it take to bring condemnation to your life? One. And that, that's straight up. That's a transgression against holiness. Holiness is out the window. Condemnation is in. If we're talking about chastening, the Lord may allow you to deal in ways that are not right spiritually, but there's a sin where he says, all right, you've crossed the line. Many of you have heard me say that I know to this hour and was convinced in the moment that when in 1969 the Lord dealt with my heart and let me know now is the accepted time, if I had not yielded, I wouldn't be here because I was about to cross some major lines. And our Father won't let us do that because he loves us enough to stop us And he loves those around us not to let us create undue harm. But his chastening is gracious. He won't condemn us with the world. But he leaves nothing unjudged. And ultimately he will see to it that there will be no charge standing against one of his children in the eternal ages to come. I I thank him for his righteousness. And I thank him for his grace. Amen.